You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the final episode of a three-part series. So we're going to begin with a little recap. But if there's only one thing you bring to this conclusion, I want it to be that all of this happened because of a horse. A purportedly psychic horse called Lady Wonder. In reality, a semi-sophisticated parlor trick. The invention of a Virginia farmer's wife named Claudia Fonda. Up until the late 1920s, research into psychic phenomena, whether supportive or critical, tended to be anecdotal. Some medium would claim to have special powers, and some investigator would come along to spot-check their acts. But when J.B. and Louisa Rhine came to Virginia from Duke University to analyze Lady Wonder, they took a more data-driven approach, statistically measuring the horse's ability to guess numbers and letters against chance odds. In the end, the Rhines concluded, quite embarrassingly, that Lady Wonder was legit. But more important than the results was the procedure. After Lady Wonder, the Rhines returned to Duke and put the quantifiable method they employed with the horse into play on people. They fundamentally changed the study of parapsychology, a term JB popularized, as well as extrasensory perception, a term JB coined. Along with a colleague, they constructed a special deck of cards with shapes instead of numbers and suits. Instead of meeting mediums on their home turf, the Duke Parapsychology Lab began investigating the abilities of apparently normal students in an apparently controlled setting. Within two years, they had sniffed out eight people whose guesses with the Zenner cards exceeded chance expectations. This was, Ryan thought, proof that ESP was real, and he published to that effect in a landmark monograph that caught the attention of both skeptics and hopefuls. From that moment on, the majority of parapsychological research has been performed in Rhine's mold. And while that makes a lot of sense, while Rhine should be celebrated for bringing scientific rigor to the subject, it isn't without its downsides. The majority of people believe in some kind of paranormal activity. A near majority claim that they've had personal experience to back up that belief, a bad feeling that kept them from getting on a doomed plane, a sense at first sight that a stranger would be important to their lives, a dream of a dead loved one bringing advice that proved prescient. 
Compared to dramatic visions and sensations like that, picking 7% of a deck of cards correctly is pretty ho-hum. A lot of people interested in Psy research from Ryan's start until today lament that the field no longer bothers to look into precisely the sort of phenomena which piqued everybody's interest in the first place. Still, you can't argue with results. Although, come to think of it, you very much fucking can, can't you? Within a precious few heartbeats of the publication of J.B. Ryan's 1934 monograph, the criticism began flowing, and those early criticisms formed the template for criticisms of later psi research. Criticisms about sample size, statistical significance, about methodological issues, inadequate controls, and faulty guards against fraud. But the most troublesome issue for the science of psi was the lack of replication. When other laboratories, universities, and individuals tried to reproduce Ryan's experiments, they found no effect. And when Ryan tried to repeat his own work with better controls to address the criticisms, he couldn't refind them either. That is the most important and ever-present pattern in parapsychology. Every few years, somebody would come along and publish some incredible result, souls work on clairvoyance, etc. But whenever somebody else then set out to repeat their research, the experiment failed. For skeptics, this was good evidence that the original research had been flawed, infested by bias, fraud, or even dumb luck. For believers, the failure to replicate was largely explained away as the result of what's called the psi experimenter effect, the idea that psychic phenomena are shy or jealous and don't like to appear in front of doubters. The most famous early version of this effect, studied by Gertrude Schmeidler at City College of New York, went so far as to hold that the latent psychic abilities of skeptics actively worsen their results so that outcomes can fall below chance odds, skewing everything. But even if the psi experimenter or sheep-goat effect were real, the problem remained the same. Until somebody could come up not just with an experiment that demonstrated psychic abilities, but that could be replicated under controlled circumstances by people who weren't already in parapsychology's corner, the scientific establishment would never take the theory seriously. In the early 1980s, things were looking rough for parapsychology. Skeptic and magician James Randi had run a sting operation called Project Alpha, in which he'd embarrassed a top parapsychology lab by covertly inserting three magicians into their studies, whom the experimenters failed to detect and took as legitimate psychics. A couple of high-profile parapsychologists were caught falsifying results, and one of the most compelling, articulate advocates for Psy announced that she was giving up. Her name was Susan Blackmore, whom you might know for her work on meme theory. And if you don't, I know it's not exactly a hot topic anymore, but her book, The Meme Machine, is worth a gander. Long before that, in the 1970s, Blackmore was a psychology student at Oxford when she ran across the Oxford University Society for Psychical Research. A bit of a new age hippie holdover, Blackmore joined up almost immediately. As a member of Oius Perar, OUSPRAR, OUS. As a member of the OUSPR, she explored graveyards, played with Ouija boards, attended lectures with witches and druids and psychics, oh my. 
Then one night, while hanging out with some of her psychical friends, she left her body. She found herself staring down at herself from the ceiling while one of her friends tried in vain to talk to her. She had a silver cord reaching out between her physical body and her astral body. That's what it seemed to her to be, at least. For several hours, she flew around Oxford, around England, and out into a strange, mystical, otherworldly plane of existence, which might have been Cardiff. Boom! Take that, whales! Blackmore's experience in the astral plane drove her interest in parapsychology from let's have a fun club with friends level to let's spend years conducting experiments to prove the reality of clairvoyance level. But after these years of experiments, Blackmore found nothing. The null hypothesis won every time, and on the small number of occasions she found anomalous results, when she tried to replicate them, the phenomena either disappeared or she discovered an error in the methodology. This is not very different from the career courses of most parapsychological researchers, but Blackmore's branched off because after those failures, she reflected. Not an easy thing. She was a self-described spiritualist and witch, a tarot card reader and a ghost hunter. Not to mention that out-of-body experience that had so moved her. To become a skeptic would mean to betray those things, core parts of her identity. But that is just what she did. And why? Because she recognized that parapsychology was looking like a shell game. Every few years, some article would come out describing a new experiment which seemed to provide strong evidence for Psy, but under scrutiny, the results of those experiments would invariably degrade. Methodological weaknesses, biases, statistical errors, fraud, or some combination of the above would be suggested, and when independent researchers tried to repeat the experiments with those problems ironed out, the effect disappeared. In 1983, this pattern was given a name by the Parapsychological Foundation, the repeatability problem in Psy. The problem was so profound that it created a three-timed fork for all parapsychologists. The road less traveled by was the one Blackmore took, looking the evidence square in the face and admitting it wasn't pretty. The less admirable angle was to back further away from the scientific process that was such a thorn in size side, to retreat into the unfalsifiable beliefs that paranormal claims are different from ordinary claims, not subject to the regular evidentiary standards of science, particularly replicability. Our focus, however, will be with the third group, the people who recognized that the repeatability problem was real, but who weren't willing to give up on Psy. Instead, they began working on reforms to parapsychology to bring it more in line with the scientific method and produce the philosopher's stone of the discipline, a sound, robust, repeatable experiment demonstrating the existence of psychic abilities. In particularly, we're gonna focus on one man who appeared to do just that and how, in the process, he triggered a global crisis that we're still grappling with to this day. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, Psych Out Part 3, Repeat After Me.
At the same time that parapsychology was entering into crisis, it was also nursing a new hope. That hope came from Charles Onerton, the banner man of the second generation of parapsychologists, raised on the intriguing work of folks like Hans Bender, Samuel Soule, and most of all, J.D. Ryan, the founding father of the field. In Onerton's case, he was raised by Ryan almost literally. He took interest in the Duke Parapsychology Lab when he was a kid, writing pen pal correspondences with Ryan. By his teenage years, he was spending his summer in Durham interning at the lab. In the mid-60s, he became a research associate at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn. While also a functioning hospital and trauma center, in the 60s and 70s, Maimonides also contained one of America's most prestigious parapsychology labs, which at the time was overseen by Stanley Krippner and Montague Ullman. Krippner's working theory was that psi phenomena could be enhanced or cajoled out via altered states of consciousness, an idea that came to him when he was working on Timothy Leary's infamous LSD trials. At Maimonides, he oversaw a sleep lab, which tested for clairvoyance, telepathy, and the like in dreams. There were, I won't bore you with the details here, a lot of difficulties with the sleep lab. But first and foremost was the difficulty it shared with all other sleep labs. It was stupid expensive. As Onerton rose through the ranks at Maimonides, and as the funding for Psy research there began to dwindle, he came up with an alternative. Onerton believed in the dream ESP research, but he wasn't sure it was the dreaming itself that was important. He'd read the research of German Gestalt psychologist Wolfgang Metzger, who had done work into perceptual deprivation, or the Gonsfeld effect. What Metzger had done was to put people into a sort of sensory bath. He put headphones on them that pumped out white noise, covered their eyes with halved ping-pong balls, and beamed red light at their faces. It was sort of like a sensory deprivation tank, but also sort of like the opposite, with the subject's eyes and ears given an overwhelming, meaningless, uniform stimulus, their senses seemed to misfire, creating noises and images out of nothing, sometimes to the point of vivid hallucinations. To Onerton, the Gonsfeld effect seemed almost bottomlessly promising. He began to consider his own theory for Psy, that the sixth sense really was a sixth sense, an extraordinary sixth sense, capable of relaying information beyond the self, but also a very quiet sixth sense that was usually drowned out by the hullabaloo of sights and sounds that assault us most of our waking lives. Maybe the reason people so often reported receiving psychic visions in their dreams wasn't down to the nature of dreams, but to the nature of sleep. That one time of day when the brain wasn't bombarded by images and sounds that distracted us from our psychic sense. And maybe the visions people experienced in the Gonsfeld experiments weren't just the random firings of neurons misinterpreted by a mind over-eager to create meaning. Maybe the misinterpretation was happening the rest of the time. The Gonsfeld effect, then, presented a real two-birds-one-stone opportunity for Onerton potentially a better test for Psy than the sleep lab, and most definitely a cheaper one. 
His first attempt at formulating a psi experiment this way doubled down on the already rinky-dink aesthetic of slivered ping-pong balls by adding a Fisher-Price Viewmaster into the mix. The terminology for this experiment is pretty self-explanatory. There was a sender and a receiver. The receiver was the one with the ping-pong balls over their eyes resting in the Gonsfeld state, while the sender, a room over, looked at an image in the viewfinder. When this was done and the receiver was removed from the Gonsfeld state, they were then given four images in the viewfinder to choose from, the target and three decoys. Like Ryan's Zener card experiments, this seemed to provide a very simple and upfront way of determining whether something beyond chance was involved in the trials. A hit rate of 25% would be normal. Anything above that, or below it for that matter, would be anomalous. And that is what Honorton found, or thought he'd found, at least. For eight years, he conducted Gonsfeld experiments and encouraged other Psy researchers to do likewise. And at the end of that time, in 1982, he presented the results. 42 discrete experiments across multiple labs and setups that indicated Psy was real. But skeptics have got a skeptic. Ray Hyman started out as a journalism major at Boston University making his way working as a magician and a palm reader. By his own account, he started off reading palms as a parlor trick, not something he actually believed in, but he became convinced over time that he must really be doing something because the people whose palms he read insisted that what he was telling them was eerily accurate. This turned him into, to use his own words here, a true believer up until his sophomore year at BU, when a friend suggested he perform an experiment. The next time he sat down with a client, he should tell them the exact opposite of what his training suggested and see what happens. Hyman did just that. Quote, If her heart line indicated that she did not like to display her emotions, I would tell her that she was the sort of person who displays her emotions openly. If her headline said she was a practical person, I would tell her she was imaginative and somewhat impractical. To my astonishment, this client was thrilled at how accurately I had captured her personality. So, I tried the same experiment on my next few clients. The results were the same. By now, I was coming to the realization that whatever was happening in a palm reading session, it had nothing to do with the lines in the hand. I was majoring in journalism when I came to this realization. I immediately changed my major to psychology. He graduated from BU, moved on to Johns Hopkins for his doctorate, and then got a post teaching at Harvard. He did some really interesting work on how choice and decision load affect the brain, but he's mostly famous for being one of the mirror image founding fathers to Ryan's parapsychology. Along with the amazing Randy, Martin Gardner, and some others, he helped form the modern skeptical movement. In 1982, he went to Stanford, where he held the Thomas Welton Stanford Chair for Psychical Research, better known as the Spook Chair, for a year. Hyman came to the same conclusion back then that I came to a few weeks ago, that there is just way too much parapsychological research out there to possibly wade through it all. I can't, there's so much, so many papers by then in parapsychology, it, it was impossible for me to sit down and read them all. And then also, I, I didn't want to take a, a sample of papers because in any field, the majority of papers are, are, are mediocre at best. Uh, we evaluate the field in terms of the very top, their best output. 
So I wanted to be fair, and I want, so I went around and asked every major parapsychologist I could. I said, could you tell me what is the best evidence you have now, the best program in parapsychology, the very best? And unanimously, almost unanimously, they said this Gansfeld experiments. Mm -hmm. So I then asked Ch Charles Arnerton, who published the first Gansfeld experiment, if he could help me, uh, I was, was interested in evaluating them. And he was all excited to have an outsider, you know, uh, to look into their, what they, he considered their best research. And he said he would help me get every paper, even the unpublished ones. Mm. And ultimately, after three months, he sent me, my, I was teaching at Stanford at the time. I had their spook chair that, for that year. <laughs> and um, I received six, a stack of 600 pages. Wow. Half of them um, uh, consisting of what he counted as 42 separate Gunsville experiments. That's an issue we won't get into now, but how, how you count what's an experiment, what's not, it was a big, can be a big issue. But there were fewer reports than that, but they covered, he called, he counted as 42 separate experiments, and most of them were significant, okay? And uh, this is what I had to evaluate. It took me, um, ultimately, three months my first go around, actually, ultimately, it, went, it took up three, of my, three years of my life, most of my professional life, to go to, into this big battle, which culminated in a 1985 issue of the Journal of the Parapsychological Association, and they devoted the whole issue to this, contra this debate between Martin and myself. I had something like 50 pages or plus of my critique mm -hmm. of that Gonsfield literature, and Arnerton had been given a year to go over that and get, make his reply, and he had a long reply there. I thought his reply was in many ways stupid, he, and he didn't like my thing in the first place, obviously. Hyman found flaws in all of the experiments that Honerton had performed and all the experiments he'd analyzed. Only about half of the studies took adequate steps to avoid sensory leakage, whereby either the receiver or the experimenter might get a hint about what the sender could have viewed. Only about a third of the studies used duplicate targets i.e. in the viewfinder experiments. The receiver was choosing from the same viewfinder disks as the sender had used instead of copies of them, meaning that there could be cues on the disks, smudges, fingerprints, wearing, even residual warmth from the sender's body heat. Very few of the studies properly randomized the selection process. Usually, both the sender and the receiver approached the targets in the same order. If four viewfinder disks were laid out left to right for the sender, as forest, desert, glacier, mountain, then that is how they would be when the receiver chose from them too. Now that is a problem because there is a small bias for people to choose the first option presented to them, something that Hyman had specifically studied in his choice research. Altogether, Hyman identified 12 categories of flaws in the Gonsfeld research, and not a single one of the 42 experiments in Anderton's analysis avoided them all. Granted, most of these flaws were tiny. Inadequate randomization or low-grade queuing couldn't account for big, bombastic psychic effects like Mina Crandon and her ilk were performing in the first half of the 20th century. But the Gonsfeld experiments didn't show overwhelming, facially obvious results. They showed the same thing that parapsychology had been trying to show since J.B. Ryan revised the field in the 1930s. Statistical significance. The effects were the stuff of probabilities. People guessing right 30% of the time when they should have guessed 25. That sort of fine-tuning makes a lot of sense, 
but it also means that little mistakes can add up. Uh, I happened to meet with Arnton, and uh, he was almost in tears. He said, you said so many bad things about me in this thing here. And I said, I didn't say anything bad about you. I just cited uh, all of the ways you were wrong, especially in response <laughs> to me. You just made up things which aren't there. And so we had this first a little animosity, but then we began talking. I realized as we talked more and more, two things struck me. One is that he was agreeing to a lot of my major points. Mm. For example, I was surprised he was agreeing, yes, by itself, those experiments don't prove anything until we can replicate them. Already, that was a big concession. And he made, made some other admissions. And the other thing I realized is that we were fighting over, what we were fighting over were nitty-gritty of individual experiments. Did they do it right? Did they use the right statistical tests in this case and so on? These were details that no one but he and I were, were privy to because we, we both had spent, gone through this. There were, at that time, when our, that first, that issue came out of the Journal of Parapsychology, all the parapsychological world was saying, oh boy, Arnotin has demolished Hyman. Mm. He really showed him up. The skeptics were saying, Hyman has demolished Arnotin, okay? <laughs> None of these people on either side had gone through, the, actually gone through and actually read the same articles. The, the parapsychologists were taking Arnotin's word that for what he was saying about these experiments. The skeptics were taking my word. So I knew that uh, no one's ever going to Except, you know, no one's going to go through all the work of, of seeing what we were fighting over, who was right and wrong on, on that issue. But the other thing I realized is that, hey, he's willing to admit that those experiments by themselves don't demonstrate the existence of Psy. So I said, look, I'll withdraw my, my, my latest thing, uh, and maybe we can do a, a joint article on what we agree. And so we went back and forth, and we did punt, uh, publish this joint communique, which said, what we thought should be the case, what would be necessary in order to uh, replicate these experiments. In the middle of the burgeoning repeatability crisis in Psy, Hyman and Onerton were charting a way through the storm. Together they laid out, in advance, a set of standards, qualifications, and methods which would have to be met in order to create a proper replication of the Gonsfeld experiment. There should be greater pains to eliminate possible sensory leakage, better randomization done by computers of targets, duplicate targets, more rigorous standards for judging, better statistical analysis of the overall results, stringent documentation of process, and, of course, when this experiment was done, Onerton should bring in an independent researcher to probe for errors, to examine the results, and to try to replicate the experiment before publication. For the rest of the 1980s, Onerton worked on a new Gonsfeld experiment that would meet the agreed-upon standards. And he was pretty sure he had found one. He called it the Auto-Gonsfeld, a version of the experiment performed with computers doing all of the randomization and selection, and a recording replacing the in-room observer to ensure the experimenter didn't give any hints. Under this new setup, Onerton still recorded significant results. It looked like proof of Psy was right there at his fingertips. But he wanted to be sure. So, he brought in an outside eye, a mainstream psychologist, a prestigious professor at Cornell University, and a nominal skeptic to look over his work. At Onerton's invitation, Daryl Bem came to Princeton, New Jersey, to see for himself what the Otto Gonsfeld experiments were made of. There's no telling what he expected to find. 
there's reason to think his skepticism was already vacillating. But he left Princeton fully convinced that Psy was real and that Honerton had proved it. He advocated for Honerton's research vociferously. Then he started doing his own. And then Daryl Bem dropped the biggest bombshell in the history, not just of parapsychology, but of psychology itself. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Daryl Bem was a respected social psychologist with a long career under his belt. He was a professor at Cornell and an editor with the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. His credentials, on paper at least, were unimpeachable. He was also an amateur mentalist and magician known to give cold reading demonstrations to his students. He'd impress them by pulling names, dates, relationships, and stories out of thin air. Then he'd tell them it was all a trick. The lesson was self-evident. Anyone can be fooled when they don't know the game. All of this made Bem a perfect choice when Charles Honerton went looking for an outside, independent investigator to spot-check his Otto Gonsfeld experiments. If Honerton could convince Bem, the rest of the world would surely follow. But what made him an even better candidate was that underneath his impressive CV, Daryl Bem was known as an iconoclast, a firebrand, even a contrarian. From the very beginning of his professional work, Bem had defined himself as an uncompromising critic, willing to challenge established wisdom, dominant paradigms, and leading theory, and to propose alternate explanations that even his critics, and there were plenty of critics, had to admit were thought-provoking. 
When Bem was still a student at University of Michigan, he took an interest in an area of social psychology that relates almost too perfectly to the story we're here to tell. How do people formulate their beliefs, and how do those beliefs change? The leading theory at the time, and mm, arguably still today, was what is known as cognitive dissonance theory, which you're probably at least passingly familiar with. Cognitive dissonance theory suggests that people strive for psychological consistency, that when they rub up against ideas, feelings, beliefs, even facts that don't accord with their priors, it causes stress and anxiety, which the individual attempts to ameliorate by minimizing, rationalizing, ignoring, or slapping on amendments and caveats. The phrase cognitive dissonance and the theory attached to it were proposed by Leon Festinger after his observations of an Oak Park, Illinois UFO cult, after their prediction that the world would end shortly after aliens came to scoop them up failed to come to pass, which we talked about in our episode At Least It's Not the End of the World. Cognitive dissonance was one of those things that wasn't just accepted by the bulk of social psychologists, but that had seeped out and become common knowledge to the public, too. And as a lowly U of M psych student, Bem thought it was wrong. Instead, he proposed an alternative theory, a radical, counterintuitive, deeply vexing theory, more in line with earlier generations of psychologists like B.F. Skinner and William James, who, by the way, had been the president of the British Society for Psychical Research in the 1880s. Not that important, but worth noting. Bem's hypothesis was almost the exact opposite of cognitive dissonance. People don't justify their behaviors and environment and actions to bring them into accordance with their beliefs. They assume their beliefs based on their behaviors and actions and environment. In a nutshell, Bem figured that people decide on their own beliefs the same way they decide on other people's. They observe and make inferences. If you meet somebody at a party who won't stop talking about dogs, you assume they're an animal lover. If you find yourself at a party talking about dogs, you assume that you are the animal lover. If you pass somebody on the street crying, you assume they're sad. If you find yourself crying on the street, you assume you are sad. Your actions don't stem from your sense of self. Your sense of self stems from your actions. If that brief paragraph is your first exposure to self-perception theory, you're probably thinking it sounds like nonsense. But even when Bem first proposed it as a student, it had a certain benefit over cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance theory, Bem correctly noted, relied upon untestable, hypothetical processes taking place within the mind. Bem's self-perception theory, on the other hand, was based on known processes. We know that we form our ideas of others by observing them, so why not assume we're doing the same thing with ourselves? And Bem's self-perception theory was testable, or at least more testable than cognitive dissonance. In 1970, he performed a study at Carnegie Mellon University. He asked students to take a survey, gauging their attitudes on student governance. Should they get a bigger or smaller say in the curricula the college presented? Unsurprisingly, the majority of his participants thought that they should have more input. 
Then he asked them to write essays for the Contra, arguing that they should cede authority to the university and their professors. Then they were asked again how they felt about the issue. And wouldn't you know it? Their views had shifted. After performing as if they opposed student control, they came to believe they opposed student control. Now, wait a minute. Doesn't that just show that they considered the issue in a different way? That in the process of advocating for a position in contrast to their priors, they maybe realized that some of their priors weren't right and reformulated their beliefs to match? Wasn't this just the result of cognitive dissonance again? Not according to Bem. See, after asking them for their new beliefs, he then asked them about their old beliefs. And the students denied that they had changed. They weren't just less for student governance now. They believed that they had always held that view. Kind of curious, right? I'll try this one on. In the 1960s, Bem considered false confessions in light of self-perception theory. People typically tend to balk at the idea that someone might confess to police for a crime they didn't commit, even though we know for a fact that it happens pretty frequently. Why? It makes no sense. Except that the circumstances of false confessions are a perfect setting for self-perception theory. You're being interrogated. The police, people who solve crimes for a living, are treating you like you've done something. If you happened to be walking by the station and saw someone else under your circumstances, you'd probably presume they'd committed a crime. So maybe you make that exact same inference about yourself. That would not only explain why people make false confessions so frequently, but also why they sometimes come to believe their own false confessions after the fact. See? Even if you don't buy into it, you're going to be thinking about that for a good long while, right? This was Bem's strength. He'd pull out some weird idea, something that totally flew in the face of prevailing belief, and he'd formulate it in such a compelling way that even if you weren't convinced, you had to give it consideration. And after he observed Charles Onerton's Otto Gonsfeld experiments, he became dead set on doing the same thing for parapsychology. We know that, at one point at least, Daryl Bem was a skeptic. He gave those mind-reading demonstrations to his students, for instance, with the express moral that they should be more skeptical. And in at least one instance early on in his career, he was brought on to investigate a supposed psychic, a man named Ted Sirios, a Chicago bellhop, who said he could create thoughtographs, images impressed upon Polaroid film by thought alone but only when he was drunk. While Sirius managed to convince a few high-profile psychologists of his abilities, Daryl Bem was not among them. He came away chalking the drunken, blurry images as a trick, the same way that the amazing Randy had. It'd be interesting to view Bem's evolving attitudes on psychic abilities through the lens of his own self-perception theory, but we don't have the data for it. Had his skeptical resolve already begun to break down before visiting Princeton? Or, after he was convinced by Onerton's Otto Gonsfeld experiments, did he merely project that conviction backwards and assume he'd always been a believer? Regardless of whether and to what degree the Otto Gonsfeld experiments changed Bem's beliefs, we can say for sure that he believed them to be convincing proof for the existence of Psy. 
And we can say for sure that that belief was naive. In 1992, Charles Onerton sadly suffered a heart attack and died, just months after accepting a position helming the Psy Lab at the University of Edinburgh. But Daryl Bem picked up where he left off, and in 1994 published a paper in one of the most reputable psychological journals in the world, the Psychological Bulletin. He called it, Does Psy Exist? Replicable Evidence for an Anomalous Process of Information Transfer. His co-author on the paper, posthumously, was Charles Onerton. Does Psy Exist, predictably, was greeted as a triumph by parapsychologists and as a farce by skeptics. The latter camp offered up a number of possible methodological errors, most of them having to do with the medium Onerton had used for his new experiments. Instead of a viewfinder, he'd moved on to showing the sender's videotapes. A number of skeptics showed that the soundproofing between the sender and receiver's rooms were insufficient and could have led to the receiver overhearing the correct target. Ray Hyman's analysis was even more fascinating. He had a number of complaints, technical methodological errors that he claimed didn't live up to the standards he and Onerton had laid out. Most intriguing, though, was when Hyman got into the nitty-gritty of the Otto Gonsfeld data. The positive results, he noticed, were not equally distributed. If there was a videotape that was chosen as a target only one time, the chances that it would be discovered by the receiver were in line with chance, 25%. If it were chosen twice over the course of the experiment, the hit rate rose to 28%. If it were played three times, the chances of it being picked were 38%. And when the target tape was played more than six times, receivers had a 52% chance of discovering it. Each time a videotape is played, its quality can degrade, Hyman wrote. It is plausible, then, that when a frequently used clip is the target for a given session, it may be physically distinguishable from the other three decoy clips that are presented to the subject for judging. Further damaging Bem's paper was the analysis of a researcher who had undergone the opposite journey from him, moving from believer to skeptic, Susan Blackmore. Bem's review had included the work of another Gonsfeld experimenter, a parapsychologist at Cambridge University named Carl Sargent. But Blackmore had shown that Sargent violated his own procedures. He hadn't properly randomized the test, he'd contaminated the results by entering the experiment himself, and she believed, on at least one occasion, he had purposefully pushed one of the receivers towards the correct target. Blackmore's report on the sloppy to fraudulent work in Sargent's lab had been published in 1987, before Bem had even begun working on his paper for Psychological Bulletin. Yet, in his analysis, Bem not only used Sargent's data, but neglected to even make readers aware that said data was controversial. Sargent's studies made up a quarter of Bem's data, with the majority coming from Onerton, which, as we've seen, had its own issues. According to Blackmore, when she confronted Bem about this, he told her it wouldn't matter if some experiments were unreliable because, after all, we know that Psy exists. If your mind is wandering back to Bem's own self-perception theory, I'm right there with you. There were other potential problems with the Gonsfeld and Otto Gonsfeld experiments. 
For instance, Terence Hines noted that if you looked through the data sequentially, you'd see a curious feature. The further forward you moved, the smaller the effect the experiments reported. Psychic activity in Gonsfeld experiments was depleting over time. And what was changing over time along with the results was the methodology. The tighter and more rigorously the experiment was controlled, the smaller the effect it showed. Draw a line of best fit and it pointed straight towards one conclusion. A badly conducted experiment showed a large result, a better experiment showed less of a result, and a perfect experiment, in theory, would show no result at all. The biggest problem with Onerton's research was an underlying presupposition that Hyman had taken note of from the beginning. Unlike some psi researchers, like Gertrude Schmeidler, Onerton didn't believe that psi abilities were evenly distributed among the populace. Some people had finer, more honed abilities than others for whatever reason. And when he performed his Gonsfeld experiments, he attempted to look for factors that might influence the abilities and strengths of abilities of his participants. He gave them surveys before they performed, checking for things like whether they believed in psychic abilities, whether they'd ever had paranormal experiences, their level of educational attainment, etc. In theory, this would help him find the impact of different personal factors on their abilities. But in practice, it gave Onerton nearly countless ways to slice and dice his results until he found some that were significant. And when a cohort didn't work the way he wanted, well, sometimes he'd just throw that one away. And I, I, I think I should clarify a couple of things about all of these papers and all of these people before we go any further, because I'm afraid I might be giving the impression that Hyman and Blackmore and their skeptical ilk were more antagonistic to Onerton and Bem and theirs than they were. To the contrary, the correspondences between all of these parties are very collegial, professional, and measured. For instance, Hyman didn't just dismiss the Otto Gonsfeld experiments out of hand because of the possible cueing he'd discovered. He acknowledged that this version was superior to its predecessor and wrote that, quote, Onerton's experiments have produced intriguing results. If independent laboratories can produce similar results with the same relationships and with the same attention to rigorous methodology, then parapsychology may indeed have finally captured its elusive quarry. He was skeptical that that would happen, naturally, and he did see a number of possible breakpoints in the work, but he was giving credit where credit was due. Similarly, although Daryl Bem was moved conclusively off the fence by that same research, he understood that it wasn't, on its own, incontrovertible proof. In his piece for Psychological Bulletin, he concluded, The Otto Gonsfeld studies by themselves cannot satisfy the requirement that replications be conducted by a broader range of investigators. Accordingly, we hope that the findings reported here will be sufficiently provocative to prompt others to try replicating the Psy Gonsfeld effect. And they were. For the rest of the 90s, a lot of folks, skeptics and believers alike, tried to perform their own Otto Gonsfeld experiments. And a lot of other folks watched those experiments, performing meta-analyses on them. Some showed positive results, some showed negative. If you ask me, there's very strong reason to side with the negative, but I won't belabor that point any further here. 
The point is that whether you believed in Psy or not, by the turn of the millennium, it was fairly clear that the Otto Gonsfeld framework wasn't going to settle the debate. Like all the Psy research before, it was failing to replicate convincingly. And while Daryl Bem was still going to bat for this work, in the background, he was working on something new. He was concocting a series of experiments that would accomplish what Gonsfeld had failed to. He understood the requirements. To find real and indisputable proof of Psy, he needed something that could be easily replicated. It had to be simple and cheap. Most of all, it had to be boring. It had to be performed in exactly the same kind of humdrum, workaday way that regular psychological research was conducted. No special pleading, no statistical tricks or methodological workarounds, just plain, honest, tedious science. Which, ironically, led to a very alarming conclusion. Hey, Matt, did you know that wombats poop cubes? Nope, never heard that before. Did you know the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, Ken? I didn't know, nor do I care. Neil, did you know that Liechtenstein is the only doubly landlocked country in Europe? Jeff, isn't that an American pop artist? Well, actually, it's both. If you want to learn things like that and more, join us each week on Triviality, a pub trivia-style game show podcast where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Listen in each week to answer general knowledge trivia alongside exciting guests from around the world. And we're here too. Join us every Tuesday for new hour-long episodes of Triviality, plus tons of extra theme content on everything from The Office and Lord of the Rings to science and geography. And sometimes we even do sports. Find us on all your preferred podcast apps and take part in the fun of playing bar trivia without the need to wear pants. Real mature, Jeff. Forget it, Neil. It's Triviality. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. It was January 2011, 
And after more than a decade of experiments performed on his own dime and time, Daryl Bem was about to publish what was easily the biggest paper in parapsychological history. Before it officially came out, in the March 2011 issue of the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, it was already an absolute sensation. And not just in scientific circles, although definitely there too. Even the mainstream press took notice. The New York Times ran a front page article about Ben's research. He appeared on cable news, and even, and especially, on Comedy Central's The Colbert Report. According to a study by Cornell psychology professor Daryl Bem, soon to be published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, there is, quote, strong evidence for extrasensory perception, the ability to sense future events. I know you're thinking, Stephen, that's bullshit. <laughs> but on the other hand, I know you're thinking, Stephen, that's bullshit. In fact, after uh, several grasping attempts of my own, I'm giving up and just letting Stephen explain the results. In his latest study, Professor Bem paid 100 college students $5 each to sit in front of a computer screen which displayed two curtains. They were told an image would appear behind one of the curtains and asked to predict which one. It's just like your grandfather's old game, which hand is hiding the quarter, except in this case, grandpa gets tenure. Now. When the image was neutral, subjects were able to predict which side it would appear on 49.8% of the time. Statistically random. But when the images about to be revealed were erotic in nature, participants were able to predict the correct side 53.1% of the time. Apparently, when it comes to seeing the future, we like to watch. <laughs> Professor Bem. Professor Bem suggests that subjects were able to sense the smut thanks to something called retroactive influence, meaning the pleasure of looking at naughty photos is so great it ripples backwards from the future to influence us in the present. That's right, folks. Science has finally discovered time, time, time. A lot of attention, a lot of attention, went to Daryl Bem's time-traveling porn experiment. I can't imagine why. But that was just one of several he conducted that seemed to demonstrate what he termed anomalous retroactive influences on cognition and affect. In another series of experiments, he tested whether, instead of choosing an erotic image, the participants would avoid choosing an unpleasant image. And in a third set, he gave subjects a list of words to visualize and then tested their recall of the words. For some of the subjects, they were given a chance to view a list containing some of the words before the test. And wouldn't you know it, they recalled more of the words on the practice sheet. But then another group of subjects were shown that practice sheet after they took the test. And holy crap, they remembered more of those words, too, on the test, even though they were reminded of them after they remembered, not before. Powerful stuff. I just wish Professor Bem were here to explain it to me. Wait, I'm sensing a presence. 
I, it's yes. Joining me now, Professor Daryl Bem. Professor, thank you so much. Yes, sir. Thank you for going to have spoken to me. You will have been a great guest. Good. I guess what made you think to even try this? Did you just have college students and you thought, what, what can I show them that would raise eyebrows? The theory Ben was working under was that if there were psychic abilities, those abilities must have evolved. And if they evolved, they must have had some fitness advantage for our ancestors. Predicting where a mate could be found, or where to avoid a predator, would be the most obviously valuable information our primitive forebearers could have possessed, so Bem figured that the best way to test for Psy would be to use sex and threats. And it worked. Or, <laughs> of course I should say, it seemed to work. In his article, Bem detailed the results of nine different versions of his erotic, avoidance, and recall tests. All of them were better than chance, if only a little bit, as he explained to Stephen Colbert. But did, but did you really show anything? It's, it's 53%. It, that, it, that's not that big of a difference from 50%. How, how do you know you're actually demonstrating something with that? Uh, well, 53% sounds small, yes. but that's exactly the amount that a casino has over you in a roulette wheel. It's a 53% advantage. Yes, over you, you win 47% of the time and they win 53% of the time at a roulette wheel. 53% uh, is what Obama won over McCain in the presidential election. Wait a second, are you saying that Obama is a time-traveling pornographer? <laughs> That's why he won't show us the birth certificate. Perhaps. Because the date is from the future. Right. The effects may have been small, but they were all statistically significant. What's more, they were boring. Bem had set out to design experiments not only that showed Psy, but that showed it in the least controversial way possible. And in that, he had very much succeeded. Unlike the Gonsfeld experiments or the Zener card experiments or the remote viewing experiments or any of the experiments conducted down through the history of parapsychology, they were totally conventional. The randomization was good. There was no chance of sensory leakage, no chance for the experimenter to influence things. The statistics were firm. The methodology sound. Everything was done exactly the way any other run-of-the-mill psychology experiment would be done. The methods were mundane. Basically unobjectionable. Yet the results... I mean... Time, 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 time. Time-traveling porn. Ridiculous, right? Reaction among the scientific and skeptical communities to feeling the future were all over the map. Now, Professor Bem's theory of extrasensory pornception is highly controversial. University of Oregon psychologist Ray Hyman calls Bem's methods flawed, his results unreliable, and has called his article an embarrassment for the entire field. Yes, 
It is a true stain on the dignified field of paying college kids $5 to look at porn. There was a very clever Bayesian analysis conducted, which tried to look at everything about Psy, the previous flawed experiments and their failures to replicate, the many ways that Psy seemed to contradict known laws of physics, the lack of a proposed method of action or theory, which Bem admitted even to Colbert. How, how is this working? How is this working that these waves of influence are coming from the future to show us the naughty parts? Uh, we have no idea. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> they crunched all of that and concluded that while Bem's research did move the needle, the needle had started so far in the other direction that it didn't really matter. It still wasn't enough reason to change your mind. Among psychologists in particular, there seemed to be two main camps. There were those who remained skeptical and justified that skepticism by nitpicking little things about how BEM's research had been conducted. And there were those who were keeping a more open mind, who said, in effect, that those little nitpicks were unfair, because they were the sort of thing you could say about almost any and every paper in the history of social science. If you thought that Bem's paper was bullshit, you'd have to say that all of that research, everything that had ever been published and was being published, was also potentially bullshit. And then there was a third, smaller camp who said, yes, exactly. It is all bullshit. Bem's premise was challenging, explosive, that the seemingly impossible was possible. But this small minority of scientists had an even more earth-shaking claim, that Daryl Bem's feeling the future didn't prove parapsychology right, it proved all of psychology and beyond, perhaps even all of science itself, was wrong. Which probably sounds like an overreaction. Except that they were right. In 2005, six years before Daryl Bem's research went public, John Ioannidis, a professor of medicine at Stanford, published a small essay in the Public Library of Science Medicine Journal with a provocative title, Why Most Published Research Findings Are False. His argument was exactly that. Of course, anybody could tell you that some research was wrong, the organ of science isn't infallible, and the publication process is even more imperfect. But Ioannidis was saying that the majority of scientific findings, more than 50%, were bullshit, tainted by researcher bias, sloppy procedures, and low statistical power of results. It was an interesting argument. Ioannidis, like Daryl Bem, is the kind of iconoclast who you have to pay attention to even when you don't agree. He made some good points, some things worth thinking about, but 50%? Come on, John, that's ridiculous. Right? Well, come 2011, it was looking less so. A heavy handful of researchers were coming around to Ioannidis' way of seeing things. He was dramatic, hyperbolic, contrarian, even unpleasant, but he was also onto something. 
When the preprint of BEM's paper began circulating in the run-up to publication, there were a number of people who saw it and said, Aha! This is exactly what we're talking about. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass, risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. The loudest voice, initially, was Eric Jan Wagenmacher's. When he first set his eyes on Bem's paper, he could barely stand to read it. Later recalling in a Slate article, I had to put it away several times. Reading it made me physically unwell. After he managed to swallow his distress and plow through it, he quickly came to a conclusion that the normal procedures of social science were busted that using totally conventional means, one could produce data that said anything. He soon began work on a paper of his own, which was to be published alongside Feeling the Future, in the same issue of the same journal. Its title was, Why Psychologists Must Change the Way They Analyze Their Data, The Case of Psy. Wagenmachers explicitly stated in the introduction that he believes that rather than proving Psy real, Bem's research instead shows that normal research practices are flawed and might regularly produce flawed results. And we will get back to exactly what those practices were and are, or our best guesses at what some of those practices were and are at least. But for now, let's focus on the looming cloud that was beginning to settle that maybe, for whatever reasons, a lot of the stuff we thought we knew was wrong. Bem's paper and Wagenmacher's response to it were the things that started people looking back at Ioannidis's essay. But soon, there was a lot more. The next domino fell very quickly. Back in 1996, John Barge had conducted a landmark study at Yale. You've probably heard of this one. It's taught in social science courses around the world. It got a lot of play in the media, especially from Radiolab and Malcolm Gladwell. Basically, Barge had asked groups of students to form sentences out of a bunch of words. Think refrigerator poetry. And then he had asked them to walk across the room. 
What the students didn't know was that the words they were making sentences out of weren't random. One of the groups was given words that evoked old age. Words like wrinkles, bitter, and bingo. And after working with those words, that group walked across the room more slowly than the others. Just reading words related to infirmity seemed to make people behave as if they were older. The Barge Slow Walking Study was the face that launched a thousand ships. Over the next decade and a half, research into priming was the hottest thing in psychology. There were studies showing that people responded more favorably to strangers if they were holding hot drinks, that American flags made people predisposed to voting Republican, that looking at fast food logos causes impatience. Another famous experiment, also popularized by Gladwell and Radiolab, showed that just by thinking about professors, imagining professors, participants performed better on a trivia test. If none of this sounds familiar to you, if you don't recognize this basic formula of headline result, then let me just assure you, this stuff was everywhere in the 2000s. Priming studies were the kinds of things you inevitably ended up talking about at dinner parties, when you weren't talking about dogs. The Barge Slow Walking Experiment was in almost any textbook you could find. In 2011, Stefan Doyen tried to replicate it with a new technique. Barge had measured his walkers with a stopwatch, but Doyen is a technologist, and he wanted to do it with lasers. But when he did, he couldn't match the results. The old word primed people seemed to walk at the same speed as everyone else. The Barge Slow Walking Experiment, the most famous study in the hottest part of social psychology, wouldn't replicate. And neither would the professor priming test. Then another of Barge's experiments, in which participants described themselves as more emotionally distant from their family members after plotting a pair of dots far apart on a piece of paper, also failed to replicate. The floodgates were opening. By the end of 2012, a year after the publication of BEM's Finding the Future, priming studies were failing left and right. There was an article published in Nature describing priming specifically and psychology more generally as, quote, building a house of cards on potentially shaky foundations. Barge, by the way, was absolutely indignant. He got into several huffy back and forths with researchers and science journalists alike that made the whole melee look all the messier. Finally, Daniel Kahneman stepped in. Kahneman is one of the grand poobahs of social science. He had received a Nobel Prize in 2002. You're most likely to know him as the author of the best-selling book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which was published in April of 2011, one month after Daryl Bem's erotic ESP paper. Kahneman wrote a chiding email to Barge and a bunch of other leaders in the field of priming, urging them to engage graciously with their critics and get right with God that their work might be in trouble. He wrote, I see a train wreck looming. Boy, was it ever. I don't know if everyone who follows this would agree, 
But in my view, there were two studies that really clinched things. One was a paper describing an fMRI scan that purported to show activity in the brain of a day's dead salmon. The other seemed to show that the researchers had discovered the fountain of youth, that participants in the study grew younger after listening to When I'm 64 by the Beatles. Both were conducted with industry standard methods, just like BEMS experiments, but with a different purpose in mind, to show that those methods were garbage. So I suppose we should talk about those methods, huh? But here's the thing, there are a lot to cover here, more than I can tackle in the time we have left. Not to mention that some of it is pretty technical. Furthermore, the exact problems in scientific research and their proportionate risks are still, almost 13 years after Bem's paper, being debated and sifted through. But there's some stuff we can say for sure, and it'll get us a lot of the way there. And we can get to most of it just by looking at Bem's ESP experiments. Let's start with a common assumption among us non-scientific researchers. We all grow up learning the scientific method, that you concoct a hypothesis, then design an experiment to test that hypothesis, then perform the experiment, then report the results. We can call that kind of stuff confirmatory studies. But there's a problem with confirmatory studies. How are you supposed to formulate a hypothesis in the first place? Just sit in your armchair smoking a pipe dreaming up falsifiable ideas? Just take things other people have already tested and test them again in different ways? That's fine, but it stagnates, slows, and limits the kind of science that can be done, that needs to be done. So you also need to dig around to gather a bunch of loose data using looser experimental protocols and then look at that data in a lot of different ways to see if there's anything there to form a hypothesis around. This is called an exploratory study. Exploratory studies and confirmatory studies. Makes sense, right? Well, here's where things start getting messy because there's very rarely such a thing as a pure exploratory study or a pure confirmatory study. Usually, you have to start out doing exploration to figure out what you're looking for to set up working parameters, etc. And then, once you've got an inkling, you can do the confirmatory part. Again, that's all reasonable. Except that in a lot of research, particularly but not only social science research, there isn't a hard dividing line between the two phases. It's more of a gradual shift, sometimes even jerking back and forth, so that by the end, it's impossible to say when exploration stopped and confirmation began. And that can be a whopping problem. Take Feeling the Future, the study that Bem published in 2011. Reading his paper, it is very hard to say what the cutoff was between exploration and confirmation. Like, there really doesn't seem to have been one. Experiments changed parameters mid-race. Some data was discarded, other stuff was used multiple times for both exploration and confirmation. 
most dangerously because Bem had started with an exploratory mindset, a fishing expedition, as he described his methods in an earlier forum. He had a lot more options for looking at his data than you'd ideally want in a confirmatory study. For instance, remember the time-traveling porn experiment? Of course you do, you filthy pervert. This was the one where a computer screen displayed a pair of curtains with an image behind one and nothing behind the other. When the image behind the screen was erotic, Bem reported, the participants were able to find it 53% of the time, a statistically significant result. And this bolstered Bem's hypothesis that we evolved a psychic ability to find mates. But when did Bem come up with that hypothesis? And how married to it was he? Because he also tested participants with what he called neutral images, right? And found no effects with those. But if he had found an effect with the neutral images, he'd have been able to formulate a different hypothesis, that we have some innate psychic ability for finding things that are common in everyday life, say. Or he could have found that people could detect both normal images and erotic images, which would have pointed to a more conventional, universal form of ESP. So right there, you've got three chances to find a positive. But there's more. Bem also performed the same experiment with what he called positive pictures, and with negative ones, and with images he classified as romantic, but not erotic. None of those resulted in hits above chance, but they could have, meaning that Bem had a further three rods in the water for his fishing expedition. That's not all, though, because he also had ways to slice and dice his participants. He took note of their genders, for instance. If men had shown a significant hit rate for erotic images, but not women, he'd still have a publishable result, a proof of sigh, and the jokes would write themselves. Remember, the results Bem did report for his porn experiment, it sounds hotter than it was, were just 53%. A psychic doing a show somewhere would be out of work if they performed as well as his experiment predicted. But nevertheless, it was statistically significant. It was anomalous. But that significance shifts when you begin to take into account all the other ways he could have found an anomaly. The same way that if you flip a coin 10 times over and over again, you're practically guaranteed to eventually get a set with six heads in it. For the erotic experiment, Bem had managed to find less than five and a half heads in a set. But we don't actually know how many sets he'd run, because he could have tested any possible number of variables in the exploratory phase and thrown them out. Which would be fine, actually, if he'd then rerun the experiment only testing for his erotic hypothesis, if he'd performed a strict confirmatory study after his exploratory one, then he'd still be good. But he didn't. The exploratory study became the confirmatory study. And that sounds really bad, like a huge oversight. And it is. But it wasn't something Bem did negligently or maliciously. This is just how most research was and still is performed. A general term for this kind of problem, coined in the wake of 2011, is researcher degrees of freedom. How many different ways does a researcher have of planning, running, analyzing, and reporting experiments? These things aren't generally reported on in a study, which means that the p-value, 
the threshold for a significant result might be very different from what it seems to be. You've probably also heard this called p-hacking or data dredging, but there are a lot of other ways to p-hack beyond this. For another example, when Bem did his statistical analysis, he used a one-sided p-value. That is, he focused on what the chances were that he'd achieve a result above chance, but he didn't include a two-sided p-value with the chances that he'd get results below chance. Maybe it wouldn't matter, maybe the results were the same either way, or else maybe the two-sided p-value didn't give a result, and the one-sided did. So he disregarded the former and published the latter. There are a few other possible statistical problems. For instance, Bem published the results of nine positive experiments and one negative one, a test for predicting boredom, of all things. But the successful ones were all positive around that 53% threshold. And that is itself statistically unlikely. If the effect only presents a little over half the time, what are the chances that you would discover it nine times out of 10? Don't answer that, it's rhetorical, fucking math kids. The point is, it's incredibly unlikely. So how did Bem luck upon those consistent results? Well, a few different researchers looked into it and came away with basically the same conclusion that Wagenmachers had presumed, that there had been a lot more data and a lot more experiments that had been thrown out. Again, though, this wasn't malpractice on Bem's part. That's just how this stuff is done. But wait, there's more. Again, sticking to Bem's paper, we can look at the number of participants in each experiment. A few of them used 100 people, a few used 150 people, and one, the boredom experiment, used 200. Nice, round numbers. But why the variation? Why not 100 all around, or 150, or better still, 200? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I should really emphasize that. I do not know. It's entirely plausible that there was some natural and innocent reason, or a logistical one. But again, Bem didn't have to set up those numbers in advance, which means he possibly could have chosen when to stop. Say he got through 100 participants in his time-traveling porn experiment, looked at the data, saw his 53%, and happily called it a day. But when he got through 100 people in his test to see whether they'd preemptively recoil from negative images, there was no effect. The results were sitting around chance. Then he might have decided to keep going, to tack on another 60 or so people, and then check again. Cut away 10 where the results were outliers or flawed or incomplete, and this time, with 150 participants, you've got an affirmative result. That definitely sounds like cheating, right? But again, this is pretty normal stuff. If you don't set out with some particular sample size in mind, then how do you know when to stop? For some researchers, the obvious answer must be when we see what we're looking for. All this kind of manipulation can be done totally consciously with a willful decision to commit fraud, or totally subconsciously in complete ignorance. Or it can be done, and probably is mostly done, in the gray middle. With good intentions, innocent justifications, following what seems like common sense or even best practices. But whatever the exact motives might be, it's clear that this stuff happens a lot. 
Which leads us to perhaps the most important question, why? The answer to that seems a lot more certain. Big, prestigious scientific journals have their pick of the litter when it comes to what they want to publish. And what they typically want to publish are big, surprising, splashy, and most of all, positive results. Positive results, like BEMS, come to think of it, make up more than 95% of new high-profile journal publications. And you know the old academic adage, publish or perish. If you're an adjunct looking to get a full professorship, or a professor looking to get tenure, you need to publish. And if you want to publish, you need positive results. So of course, you're going to be motivated to find them, consciously or otherwise. It's like steroids in 90s baseball, or doping in 2000s biking. If you don't keep up with the pack, you might be out of a job. Journals don't traditionally like publishing null results. They also don't traditionally like publishing replications, because both are boring, talking about things that didn't happen or that already happened. But worst of all is stuff that didn't already happen. Negative replications. Daryl Bem had designed his experiments specifically with replication in mind, you'll recall. He didn't like all the criticism he got, he didn't agree with all the criticism he got, but ultimately it didn't matter. What was important was whether other people could repeat his results. But when people started trying to, and failing to, they soon discovered that no one was interested in publishing that. Column inches are valuable real estate, and negative replications are wasted space. You may have already noticed a special irony here. In the 1980s, parapsychology had been facing a crisis, and Charles Onerton had brought in Daryl Bem in order to address it, and to make psi research credible in the eyes of mainstream psychology. Instead, Bem tracked mud all over the floor. He brought the repeatability problem in psi with him into the pages of one of psychology's top journals, and then the problem had spread from there, becoming what we now call the replicability crisis. Not in Psy, but in science. For four years, 270 scientists joined together in what they called the Reproducibility Project Psychology. They reran 100 studies that had been published in three important publications the Journal of Experimental Psychology, the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, and Psychological Science. In 2015, they announced the completion of the project. Of the 100 reproduced studies, only 36 of them showed results. And most of those positive results were much smaller than the original research. Then, in 2018, a group of 24 psychologists did the same thing with another 21 studies which had been published in the absolute gold standard journals, Nature and Science. Only 62% of those reproductions worked. And again, the effects were much smaller the second time around, about half the size in most of the positive cases. The problem is at its most acute in psychology, but it gets around much further than that. Social science generally, and economics particularly, have seen really dire numbers. 
medicine, especially neuroscience and drug trials, have also been deeply affected. Even hard science stuff, like physics and astronomy, aren't immune. There is no corner of the scientific world untouched by the replication crisis. The concept of meta-science sprung up specifically to address it and is now a large field itself. And while there have been a lot of improvements over the last decade and change, things like pre-registering experiments, increasing sample sizes, reformulating p-values, it's clear there's still a long way to go. And on the one hand, that sucks. It sucks really bad. The replication crisis has contributed to a larger skepticism around science that's often ideologically motivated. Climate and vaccine denial, for instance. Even when it's not polarized by some discrete social force like that, it's obvious that most everyone deploys their skepticism the hardest when facing results they don't like. Our confidence in science, or lack thereof, is never evenly or fairly distributed. Even if it were, that would still suck, because it'd be great to have more confidence about science, the only thing we have a theoretically good way to quantify confidence in. On the other hand, at least now we know, and can improve, and revise, and better our knowledge, which is what science is for, after all. And maybe what being human is for. And if it weren't for Daryl Bem, we might not know. Sure, there were other things happening, some high-profile frauds, some failures to replicate, some small number of scientists trying to ring the alarm bell, but all of that would have been easy to ignore or overlook. Daryl Bem made an extraordinary claim, which therefore required extraordinary evidence. And when people went looking into that evidence, they located the problem. Without feeling the future, who knows how long that might have taken. In the same spirit, we wouldn't have feeling the future without Charles Onerton. And we wouldn't have Charles Onerton without the father of parapsychology, the guy who brought statistical practices to psychical research in the first place, J.B. Rhine. And J.B. Rhine might not have done that if it weren't for his second psychical evaluation of a clairvoyant who predicted the outcome of the Tunney Dempsey long count fight. We owe all of this, improbably, ridiculously, farcically, to a horse, a psychic horse, a talking horse. So, thank you, Lady Wonder. You're welcome, Mark. <laughs> Music for today's episode provided by Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. This episode is brought to you in large part, in main part, really, by our patrons, who shell out their hard-earned simoleons so the rest of you freeloaders can lay back in your hammocks and appreciate the fruits of their labor. And listen to a bunch of ads. If you'd like to change that, you can head over to patreon.com slash theconstant and sign up to receive new episodes early and ad-free, along with monthly bonus content. We'll be back in two weeks with some pretty dark and disturbing Halloween content. Until then, from Chicago, Illinois, home to the University of Chicago Booth School, which recently published a plan for getting out of the replication crisis, this has been The Constant.
A horse is a horse, of course, of course, and no one can talk to You're a horse. You're welcome. Unless the horse is the famous Mr. A. Go right to the You're welcome, Mark. I can do this all day. I'm not going to get one that's going to work. You're welcome, Mark. You've got to have more tremolo. Tremolo is the key. You're welcome, Mark. You're welcome, Mark. You're welcome, Mark. Listen to this. I am Mr. Ed. We got to cut that off. This has been a Filmways television presentation.